0: Well a classic uh, hymn to remind us of the truth of God's word and I think that uh, song Amazing Grace, we typically think of that last verse when we've been there 10,000 years. That's the, the, the climax, the, the, the verse that we all love and uh, to sing but uh, it seems that uh, second to the last verse in the times that we're living in, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come and God's grace will lead us home. And uh, what a great reminder for us uh, this morning. Well, when the coronavirus began to ramp up and it uh, became apparent that we were gonna have to make some changes here uh, as a church uh, as to how we, how we minister to people and um, probably have to go to something like we're doing now, this live stream, I sat down at my desk and I took out a post-it and I began writing down all the verses or passages that uh, came to my mind that uh, related practically to a global pandemic. And uh, one of the first verses that came to my mind that I wrote down on that post-it is the passage that I wanna have you turn uh, to this morning with me and I want us to consider how relevant uh, the words of James are to us in our current situation. I'm referring to James chapter four, verses 13 through 17. James chapter four, Verses 13 through 17, and even as I read this, I, I'm confident that you'll agree that this is a very relevant, very timely text for all of us. James chapter 4, verse 13, James writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, again this morning, thanking you for your holy word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that uh, we know every word in this book was inspired by your spirit. And the same spirit that inspired James to write these words lives within us and abides with us to illuminate us, to help us understand and apply this text to our lives. And so, we ask that as we grapple with the, the challenging truths here, Lord, that all of us would be encouraged, challenged, impacted, changed, and more conformed to the image of Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, COVID-19 has become synonymous with change. There's not a person on the planet whose life has not changed in some way as a result of the coronavirus. This international crisis has not only changed our everyday lives, but there are those who believe it will change our lives and our world forever. Whether that is true or not is yet to be seen, but for now, we have had to change a lot of things. We've had to change how we greet people, how we interact with people and socialize in society. We've had to change our hygiene habits, our daily routines, our worship practices, our work and school schedules, our travel plans, our graduation plans, our vacation plans. I think one of the biggest challenges that we've all faced over the last two months is our inability to make plans. Because there have been so many unknowns and so many uncertainties. And frankly, we're not used to that. All of us are constantly planning where we're going, who we're going to see, and what we're going to do after church today, tomorrow, next week, next month, a year from now. And this can easily result in us having an illusion of control over our lives and becoming presumptuous about the future. That's exactly what happened to the Christians that James was writing to in this letter. They were bragging about all the things they were planning on doing in the future. And yet they were being awfully presumptuous because they had completely ignored God in the planning process. And so James confronted their presumption by showing them the things they had failed to consider in planning their lives. And whenever we make plans, we consider things, don't we? We we carefully consider all the different factors involved, all the various options available to us. However, there are some extremely important factors that we usually fail to take into consideration when planning. And when we fail to consider these things, God gets left totally out of our plans. And so sometimes I believe that God has to disrupt our lives and interrupt our plans to remind us that he is the one who ultimately controls our lives, so that we don't forget to include him in our plans. I'm sure you've all heard the famous line penned by the Scottish poet Robert Burns in a poem called, To a mouse on turning up in her nest, excuse me, turning up her nest with the plow. This is the line. You've probably never heard of that title, that poem, but this is the line I, I know you've heard. The best laid plans and my, of mice and men often go awry. Have you heard that before? The, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Legend has it that Burns, the author of that line, was plowing a field and he accidentally destroyed a mouse's nest and he felt badly for disturbing its home, which the mouse had, had worked so hard to build in order to survive the winter, but it caused him to think about how even when we as human beings work really hard and we think we've got things all figured out, sometimes the, in his words, universe has a different idea of how things should go. Well, from a biblical perspective, even when we work really hard and think we've got our lives all figured out and all planned out, sometimes God has a different plan for our lives. That's why I love Proverbs 16, verse 9, which says this, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The coronavirus has given us all an opportunity to put this verse into practice in our lives. And James wants to help us this morning to do that in this passage by reminding us that while planning is a normal, natural part of our lives, well, so is change. Life is subject to change. And the simple lesson to be learned here today is if after making plans or setting our course in a specific direction and the Lord sees fits to overrule and alter our plans or redirect our lives, then we must humbly and gladly submit to his will for our lives. And so what I'd like you to see this morning from this text is six factors, six factors that we need to always take into consideration whenever we're making plans so that God doesn't get left out of our plans. Hopefully you uh, were able to download the uh, sermon outline application question sheet that we sent via email facebook i think it's even right there on your screen potentially that you can look at it but let's look at these six factors six factors that that we always need to take into consideration whenever we're making plans so god doesn't get left out of our plans the first factor is the incapability of man the incapability of man, notice verse 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year and engage in business and make a profit. That expression, come now, was an expression used to get somebody's attention and James vigorously demanded their attention, the reader's attention, he's he's demanding our attention this morning, this text demands our attention. Because it's as if his readers had fallen asleep and so he wanted to shake them, to to wake them up and tell them something urgent. And so if you're sitting there on your couch this morning or on your lazy boy all cuddled up with your blanket and maybe you're still in your pajamas, well, guess what? This text wants you to wake up. Listen attentively this morning. There's something here that God wants to say to you. He said, come now, you who say, and this you he's referring to was, was Jewish merchants. He was calling them out, uh, these guys who were in the habit of traveling from one city to another and they would set up shop for a while and they would make some money and they would move on to the next city. And what he was doing here, he was mimicking their presumptuous attitude as they made their future plan. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow, we're gonna go here, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna win this, and make this kind of money, and. Now James wasn't faulting them for making plans. There's nothing wrong with wise, careful planning. In fact, I believe God expects us to plan responsibly for the future. The problem with these guys is they had not included God in any of their plans. They didn't think they needed God. And so James painted a picture here of that that kind of aggressive, assertive, high-powered, highly motivated business person who's so sure of themselves and so confident of their own abilities and so dependent on their own ingenuity and so certain that they're just going to kill it. There's an air of invincibility about them, and they think they're fully capable, and in, in and of themselves, of accomplishing whatever they set out to do. And but what they failed to realize is, apart from God, they are incapable of doing any of the things they had planned. Jesus said in John fifteen five, "Apart from me, you can do nothing." The psalmist said in Psalm 127 verse 1 that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so because these folks that James was writing to failed to consider their incapability, they didn't see the need to include God in their plans. I think too often we're guilty of the same thing. We we map out our lives, if you will, without ever consulting God. We're so consumed with what we wanna do that we, we never even consider what God wants us to do. And so we go ahead and rush forward and we pick a church, we choose a college, we pursue a career, we get married, we have kids, we buy and sell homes, we expand portfolios, we spend our time and money without ever seriously seeking God to find out what he would have us to do. I want you to take a moment this morning while you're sitting there to... Think of something that you're planning to do sometime in the near future. Have you thought of something? Just just anything you're you're thinking about doing, you're planning to do in the near future. Have you seriously and sincerely prayed about that? Have you asked God to give you the wisdom to know how to accomplish that or to give you the strength or the ability to accomplish that? Have you asked him if, if it's what he wants you to do? If you haven't done any of those things, then I would say that you're worse than an atheist. We, we know that term, atheism. Atheism is a a term to describe those who deny the existence of God. But what is far more common, I think, is is people who say they believe that God exists, but they live like he doesn't. It's It's what's been referred to as practical atheism. You may not deny that there is a God, but you defy his will for your life. Or you just disregard him when you make plans? How do you respond when your plans don't work out? Do you get upset when things don't go your way? They don't go as you plan them to go? Do Do you pout when your expectations are broken or they go unmet? Do you stress out and run around and try to fix everything? I think if you respond in any of these ways, when God chooses to change or to redirect your plans, that's evidence that you're resisting his will for your life. You're showing that that you wanna do what you wanna do more than you wanna do what God wants you to do. And so the first factor that we need to make sure we consider whenever we make plans is the incapability of man our own own incapability there's a second factor that we need to keep in mind when we make plans and that is the uncertainty of life the uncertainty of life notice verse 14 yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Come on, guys, you're out there thinking, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do this, and then this, and over here, and then. Man, you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. I mean, you could leave happy and healthy one day, and the very next day, you get robbed, your camel gets a flat tire, I guess comes a blame. You could contract the coronavirus, you could lose everything in the stock market, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Life is full full of all sorts of unforeseen circumstances which we, we have absolutely no control over whatsoever. Any number of things could happen to us that will instantly and completely and permanently change or alter our lives. We never know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says it this way, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I'll never forget the event in my younger life when the truths of this passage became real to me when you're young and in college and you have your whole life in front of you and there is a sense of invincibility and um, you know, you you, you, you you just think you're, um, you know, in, invincible. And uh, anyway, we were, had this plan, Kelly and me and some gals from the school, four other gals, Uh, we were gonna drive up uh, the California coast from L.A. to Seattle and uh, it was uh, the end of the school year and uh, I was gonna head up with Kelly back to her home in Seattle and these other gals lived up in the uh, Washington area as well and so we set out on this journey and uh, we had all these plans and where we were gonna stay along the way and anyway, we were driving along and probably two days three days into our journey and uh, i'll never forget we was at night and we pulled into coos bay oregon and uh stopped at the dairy queen to get a blizzard and uh, we were gonna go a little bit further before we uh, made it to our destination that evening and and uh, so we were driving along and the whole whole way uh kelly and i were in the front in her car and And uh, these gals were in the back and they this gal she had this old Plymouth Fury I mean this thing was old and it was this huge and the steering wheel was like about this big and anyway so I would be driving along and just keeping them in my rearview mirror the whole way and so anyway we pulled out of Coos Bay and we're just eating our blizzards and driving down the road and I they're in their rearview mirror I'm seeing it's at night now and I just see their headlights and and uh, it was driving along and I looked back and I didn't see their headlights and so I slowed down a little bit and I still didn't see their headlights and I thought well that's kind of strange and so I actually pulled over to wait for them and after waiting for a few minutes they never came and I thought hmm, something must have happened maybe they got a flat tire had to pull over Uh, so I turned around and we started heading back down the road and sure enough there were these two headlights on the side of the road and I thought okay sure they just probably pulled over had to stop for some reason and so as we got closer and we pulled up next to their car I looked out and I noticed it was their car but their car was flipped over on its top and the roof was completely collapsed and the car was flattened. What I had realized was that as they were driving, the car went off into the ditch and the gal overcorrected and uh, hit the embankment and flipped the car over. And so I told Kelly to stay in the car and I got out and all I could see was through the little crack of the window that was left, I could see a leg pinned in this car. And by the looks of the accident, I thought, these girls are dead. There's no way they could survive that. And so I went up to the car and I really didn't know what to do. I, I, and so I remember just kneeling down on the back bumper and audibly crying out to God for mercy <laughs> because I didn't know what to do. And immediately, three of the girls showed up behind me and I was like, well, are you guys okay? Oh yeah, we crawled out and, and this other gal is still in there. The driver is still in there. and So anyway, by the grace of God, the first person to come upon us was an off-duty uh, paramedic. And uh, they were there and they called in the police and the ambulance and they were able to extract this gal from the car. And by the grace of God, she just had a minor neck injury and um, a church in the area heard about the situation and they put us up in a hotel for the night and... Uh, provided us food and, uh, we, and it was just amazing how God took care of us. And uh, I still have pictures of that car in one of my old Bibles. I keep it in the front of my Bible just as a reminder of the brevity of life. Come now, you say you're gonna go here and you're gonna do this and you're gonna travel up the coast and you, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know what's gonna happen and in a split second, everything changed. And so we need to keep in mind when we're making plans, the uncertainty of life. There's a third factor here that we need to keep in mind and that's the brevity of life. Not only the uncertainty of life, but the the brevity of life. Again, notice verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This is a a graphic illustration of the shortness of life. Your life is but a a vapor and we've all seen vapor in different forms whether it's the steam coming out of your your tea kettle, uh, our breath on a cold day, the, the morning mist on the lake or maybe Kiddos, you've all blown a bubble, right? That thing comes out, and it's going like this, and all of a sudden, it's gone. And you don't ever know when it's gonna pop. Well, the shortness of life is a common theme throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Psalms, Psalm 39, verses four and five, David writes this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths. In other words, the distance between your finger and your your, your palm, the, the hand, the breath of your hand, it's just that short, it's that small. And my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And then of course we already read Psalm 90 this morning, earlier. Talking about how God is from everlasting to everlasting but we, on the other hand, are turned back into dust For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fell asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I think the idea there is like the old... uh, the Old West threat, right? Your days are numbered. Point is, you don't know. You could live to your 80, but you don't know. Life is short. Keep that in mind when you make decisions, when you make plans. There's another factor the fourth factor that we need to always consider when we're making our plans, and this may be the, the, the key, really, to this passage, and that is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Notice verse 15, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Instead, he says, well, instead of what? Instead of saying, hey, we're gonna do this or that, we're gonna go to this city, we're gonna make some money here, then we're gonna go here, we're gonna do that. Instead of saying that, what you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. He's contrasting the the proud speech of the businessman in verse 13. Verse 13. What is this expression, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that? It's a humble confession of and submission to God's sovereignty over our lives. Sovereignty means that God is sovereign. He reigns over all things. He's in absolute control of everything. Psalm 103, verse 19, God sits on his throne and his sovereignty rules over all. And that means there's no such thing as fate, there's no such thing as destiny or survival of the fittest or luck or chance or coincidence or even an accident. I mean, if you wanna be really biblical in your language, uh, what happened outside of Coos Bay, Oregon was not an accident, it was a providence. It was all part of the plan of God to accomplish his purposes. At least in the life of one young college guy who thought he had the world by the tail and was invincible and had it all figured out. So James is encouraging us here, exhorting us here to qualify our plans with the statement, if the Lord's will. And by doing that, we're acknowledging that God is the one who's ultimately in charge of our lives. But more importantly, we're expressing our willingness to submit to whatever God's will is for our lives. In essence, what we're saying when we say, if the Lord wills, We're actually saying this, this is what I'm planning to do, but my plans may not coincide with God's plans, and so if he chooses to change my plans, I'm not going to fight it, I'm not going to resent it, I'm not going to resist it or be bitter about it, but I'm going to gladly accept it because I'm convinced that God is a whole lot smarter than me and his plans are a whole lot better for me. Yeah, this is a great reminder that God's will is not something to be endured like some bad-tasting medicine, but it's something to be embraced like a treasured friend. I don't think James was expecting us to mechanically repeat this phrase every time we tell someone about what we're planning to do. Like Lord willing, I'm planning to finish this sermon and Lord willing, after uh, church today, I'm gonna go home and celebrate my wife's birthday and Lord willing, we're gonna play a game and Lord willing, we're gonna next week do this and Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. I don't think it's to be treated like some magical formula like the Greeks would always say, if the gods will. but it's a phrase that we should incorporate in our language, in our communication, in our conversations, even as Paul did several times. Paul used this phrase in his letters when sharing his future plans. In Acts chapter 18, verse 21, when he was there in Ephesus, they asked him to stay longer He did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. He used this expression in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And then again in chapter 16, 16 verse seven, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So this is a good example, Paul using this uh, expression, this phrase, if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits, But there were other times when he was sharing his plans and he didn't preface it with that phrase or end it with that phrase. The point is we need to include this in our conversations from time to time, not just as a reminder to others, as a a good witness to others that we are living under the will of God but as a reminder to ourselves That the Lord has veto rights in our lives. And so we need to remember the sovereignty of God. Fifthly, we also need to remember and keep in mind and consider the audacity of boasting. The audacity of boasting. Verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Because you're not saying, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or that. You're just going off about what you're planning on doing, you you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Someone in our church gave me a very uh, precious gift uh, a few years ago, and it's uh, a book by Kenneth West called The New Testament, and Expanded Translation, and it's basically a, a paraphrase of the whole New Testament, and, and uh, most often when I study, if I'm studying a passage in the New Testament, I'll start by reading that book to see how he translated it and, and maybe expanded on some of the ideas and thoughts in a particular ver- verse that would give me some insight into what the, the original writer was saying. But in this case, this is how Kenneth West translates verse 16. And I quote, he says, But now you are glorying in your self deceived and groundless trust in the stability of your life and possessions. All such glorying is pernicious. Some good thoughts there self deception, the illusion of control, groundless trust in your own ability your own possessions, all such glorying is pernicious. Pernicious is not a word we often hear, but it simply means something that's harmful or destructive in a gradual, subtle way. And so when we walk around saying, yeah, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, we kind of boast of the things that we're planning. Well, we're gradually destroying ourselves. He says, as it is, you boast. And the word here is it expresses the idea of a wandering quack who, who bragged about all the things that they were able to do, the, the cures that, they, 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 uh, that weren't really cures. Or, or, or a person who tried to impress people by claiming to be able to do things that they couldn't really do. This is the wandering quack guy. This boastful, arrogant guy. Arrogance, again, is just boastful self-confidence in your own strength, your own skill, your own wisdom to accomplish your own plans. But he says you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. I mean, it's just, it's, it's extremely audacious for us to brag about what we're planning to do. It communicates to God and to others that you think that you're in control of your own life. And that you can go here and do this and do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, that you're the master of your destiny. And it's just plain evil, James says. It's it's, it's aggressively and viciously evil and totally unacceptable to God. There's no better illustration of this type of arrogant, audacious attitude and what God thinks about it than Satan himself. And particularly when he casts, when God casts Satan out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 verses 13 through 15, we find Israel's taunt to the king of Babylon But we also find here, according to most biblical scholars, they all agree that this is a veiled reference to Lucifer. And these are the five uh, I wills of, of Satan. Isaiah 14, verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Here was Satan, the chief angel, the most beautiful angel God ever created, boasting arrogantly, audaciously of what he was going to do. I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this, and I will this, and I will that. Then God said, no, you aren't. No, you won't. You're going to hell. Maybe a more relatable illustration would be that of the parable of the rich fool The parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus was teaching on the subject of greed. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, he tells a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Here's a guy who had it all figured out. Had his whole life planned out. And it was all about him. I, me, my. God was nowhere in this guy's thoughts or plans. God didn't even fit into the equation of his life until God shows up and said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? The point is, while you may not acknowledge that God is there or plays a a, a part of your plans or a role in your life, He's there, and he plays the sovereign role in our lives, and not only does he determine the day that we're born, he also determines the day that we die. That's how much he's involved in your life. And so we need to realize the audacity of boasting. And then lastly, the sixth factor to consider when making plans is the iniquity of neglect. The iniquity of neglect, or simply stated, the sin of neglect. The sin of neglect. Notice verse 17. Back in James, verse 17 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin. So that word therefore is is letting us know that James is summarizing now what he's just said. He's, in other words, in light of what I've just said to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin. In other words, you know now what is the right thing to do. You, You know what's right and you know what's wrong. I've just explained it to you, James says. And so the right thing to do, him who knows the right thing to do, the right thing is to to humbly acknowledge our frailty and God's sovereignty and to plan our lives accordingly. In other words, including God in every plan that we make. And if we don't do that, We're sinning. Neglecting to include God in our plans is not just a small oversight. It's not even just a bad idea. It's sin. Granted, it's a sin of omission, which are sins that we don't often consider, right? we we usually focus on sins of commission which are the bad things that we do that we know we're not supposed to do while sins of commission are the right things that we don't do that we know we're supposed to do sins of commission again the bad things that we do that we know we shouldn't do that's sins of commission sins of omission are the right things that we don't do that we know we should do and here is a great Example that God holds us responsible for both kinds of sins. Sins of commission and sins of omission. A simple way to remember it is sins we commit and sins we omit. God holds us accountable to both. And in this case, again James was simply wanting to make sure that God didn't get left out of our plans. And so he warned us not to take anything for granted, but to give serious consideration to these six factors whenever we plan anything in our lives. The incapability of man, the uncertainty of life, the the brevity of life, the sovereignty of God, the audacity of boasting, and again, the iniquity or the sin of neglect. Now I know you're used to us studying through books of the Bible and so you know that there's a reason why these five verses are here in James chapter four, they all fit into a bigger picture and there's a context, an overall context here that we need to understand to make sure that we're not taking this out of context but this fits uh, into the overall purpose of James' letter very well, and you say, well, how so? Well, if you are familiar with the, with the book of James, it's, it, it, you could title it, The Fruit of Faith. In other words, uh, what James is getting at here is, is what does is, what is true faith look like? In, in chapter two is really the heart of the, of the letter where he says, faith without works is dead. In other words, we're saved by grace through faith alone, But faith that saves is never alone. In other words, there's always some evidence. There's some fruits. The Bible says you'll know them. You'll know who's saved and who's not saved. Who's a true follower of Christ and who's not a true follower of Christ by their fruit, by their actions, by their attitudes. And so throughout the book of James, he gives... uh, different kinds of fruits that we should look for in our lives to, to demonstrate that we truly know Jesus Christ, that we have genuine, sincere faith, that we're a true believer. And so I believe James' point was simple in this text, that one of the clearest indications that a person has genuine, saving faith in Jesus Christ is they include God in their plans. In other words, a true Christian doesn't leave God out of their plans. They don't, they don't, they're not a practical atheist. They're not a practical atheist. They eagerly seek out and gladly submit to his will, his plans for their life. They want to do what God wants more than they want to do what they want. Mark chapter three, verse 36, Jesus defined who he considered to be a member of his family when he said, quote, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In Matthew 7, uh, 21, Jesus gave this strong warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In Ephesians 6, verse 6, Paul described Christians as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, Peter exhorted believers to live the rest of their of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And then in 1 John 2.17, the apostle John reminded believers that the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. All these verses say the same thing that James was saying in this passage, that the distinguishing mark of a genuine believer, a true Christian, is that they obey God's will. They do what God wants them to do rather than what they want to do. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of James is... um, a more obscure one by a man named Jay Adams and it's called uh, A Thirst for Wholeness. And uh, if you're familiar with that name, Jay Adams, he was the father of, uh, is the father of biblical counseling, newtetic counseling, and and so he always has a very, uh, very direct, very practical, very convicting way of thinking about things and talking about things and explaining things and applying things to our lives as believers, and so listen to what he said here, and this is his comment on this particular passage, his application of this passage. He said, and I quote, how you make plans tells you much about your relationship to God, how important he is to you in everyday life. If you are largely a Sunday Christian whose faith has little to do with the rest of the week, then you will see no place for God in your planning. The real test comes in what you do with the plans once made. The attitude you take towards your plans and the way you treat them is all important. That's what gives the clearest insight into the vitality of your faith. It's easy enough to put formally correct lines on paper, but to be willing to have them scratched out and scrawled over, well, that's quite a different thing. You must learn to plan with a holy caution and you must develop enormous flexibility. You must plan according to your best understanding of biblical principles applied to circumstances as you best understand them. But because you are both sinful and limited and because you do not know specifically what God's will for you may be, you must always submit your plans to God for his blue penciling. Then you must expectantly await the Holy Spirit's additions and corrections all the while anticipating them with excitement. Taking God into your plans will keep you from ever thinking your plans are final. When you plan providentially, depending depending on God to providentially handle your plans as he sees fit, God will review what you've done, make his alterations, and hand them back to you for your good and the good of his kingdom. I think that's a great summary of Proverbs sixteen nine. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Beloved, remember that when God changes your plans, it's simply because he has a better plan. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this text and how practical, how relevant it is to our lives in these uncertain days when it's been difficult to plan, and uh, it's been frustrating for many of us that we can't plan. Um, Our lives have been disrupted and interrupted, ultimately, not by the coronavirus, but by you. And it's a great reminder for all of us that we're not in control of our lives as we so often think and feel like we are. And uh, Lord, we confess that we are often presumptuous about the future. And so, Lord, thanks for keeping us in check by your grace, by your mercy, uh, bringing things like pandemics into our lives uh, just as a divine reminder, a divine disruption um, to get us back on track in our thinking and our living. And so Lord, help us as we seek to put this message into practice in our lives. May, may um, we be different that if if it is true that our lives will never be the same, that our lives will have changed forever uh, as a result of this uh, virus, Lord, that this would be one of those ways. That we would never boast in our arrogance. But we would always say, if the Lord wills, if you will, we'll do this or that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.